Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful to you and thankful for this opportunity to worship you together and to open your word freely and to hear from our Savior, our God. Lord, I don't presume that everyone in this building knows you. And so I pray and ask, Father, would you reveal yourself to them? And would you reveal yourself to us in a fresh way, though this text is very ancient? Be glorified in this hour, Lord, we pray. And teach us and change us and fill us with an urgency for the gospel that can only be explained by the power of your spirit. For we pray it in the name of our Savior who is the gospel. Amen and amen. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Always wanted to preach this text. And today is the day. Isaiah chapter 6. For the past several weeks, we've been learning about gospel urgency. And to the question, what does gospel faithfulness look like in this historic moment in time in America and in this particular culture? That's the question we wrestle with. We live in a country that at one time was very receptive to the word of God. The United States was founded on what were, in the main, biblical principles and even gospel preaching. But that is no longer the case. Today we find ourselves living in a culture and political atmosphere where many of the most influential leaders of our time in the ship of state are doing their dead level best to gather up everything that smacks of Christianity and throw it overboard. And they've been doing it for a long time, uh, pretty much most of my lifetime, and with such vigor and determination that the general cultural view of theology and basic morality even has diametrically shifted. Today, much of what God says is wrong is now considered right, and what God has declared right is considered wrong. It is at the same time both ironic and frightening when we consider the fact that certain people and businesses are being branded immoral for practicing what has always been considered moral, holy, and good. I think it's safe to say that we're living in a time of national crisis, and it likely won't get better. Yes, the, the high-speed train leading to Sodom and Gomorrah has slowed a little bit since the last election, but the direction is still the same, merely at a slower pace. The condition of the nation of Judah in the days of Isaiah was in a similar situation. Their experience of national crisis was happening in their own time. Under King Uzziah, the nation of Judah had prospered for 53 years. That's how long he reigned. That's a long time. I'm 53 years old. If, if, and, and he became king at age 16. How many 16-year-olds do we have here? How many of you parents of 16-year-olds would turn over the country to your 16-year-old? He was 16. He reigned for 53 years. To put that in perspective, David reigned 40 years. Solomon reigned 40 years. Uzziah reigned 53 years. Uzziah was a brilliant leader who expanded the borders of Judah 
and led to greater prosperity in the nation. He developed a military that was almost equal to that of King David in his time. Moreover, he had been a godly king for most of those 53 years. Nevertheless, when prosperity came and victory came and security came, King Uzziah became proud in his his focus on self, his pride began to wear on him. In fact, at the end of his life, we find him running into the temple to um, do what only the priests were allowed to do. And though the priests commanded him to stop and, uh, and demanded that he obey God's word on the point, he screamed at them, and tried to use his verbal authority to have his way, and God came and struck him while he held on to the altar, struck him with leprosy. He went into exile and he died. But throughout the book of Isaiah, we read that the people in his day, it says this, they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have mocked the counsel of the Holy One of Israel. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. They have said, do not tell us what is right. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. They mocked the Holy One of Israel. And you read the book of Isaiah, and it's repeated again and again and again, their disdain for the Holy One of Israel. That re- kind of rings familiar to our ears, does it not? Toward the end of his reign, Uzziah, Uzziah, we would love to say, finished well, but he didn't. He, like so many in our time, when prosperity led to pride, turned his back on God. I suspect Isaiah, at this time, facing national crisis, he was one of the few prophets, he's not a prophet yet here, in the first five chapters of Isaiah, at least that's what many scholars say. He's not a prophet yet, but he's going to be by the end of this chapter. But he's a member of the nobility, and it was rare for a prophet of God to be a member of the nobility. He was personal friends with the king. And in this moment of national crisis, what do you do? The king is dead. The prospects of his son taking the throne and leading them in the right direction were questionable. He ended up actually doing a pretty good job for a while. But what do you do? Well, Isaiah, being a godly man, did the only thing he knew to do. He went to the temple, perhaps seeking consolation from the Lord. But he knew where to go. He didn't what to do, but he knew where to go. And so with deep concern for the nation, Isaiah went to the temple of the Lord, no doubt, to pray, to pour out his heavy heart in the presence of God with a sense of hopelessness about the future of their nation and what will become of this nation. Isaiah didn't realize it yet, but after he entered the temple, he was going to get more than he had ever bargained for. He went to pray to the Holy One of Israel He had no plan to meet the Holy One of Israel. And so Isaiah doesn't know it yet, but he's about to become a prophet of the Lord. Halfway through this chapter, we hear God ask the following question. Whom shall I send? 
and who will go for us? In other words, who will take my message to the people, these wayward people? I mean, that's the very question that we need to answer if we as a church are going to be motivated by a strong sense of gospel urgency for the lost and wayward people among whom we live. People who likewise don't want to have anything to do with the Holy One of Israel. So what happens? Well, rather than me tell you about it, let's stand together and read it. Isaiah chapter 6. Beginning with verse 1, Isaiah 6, beginning with verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go. Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is desolate and waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though the tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here is the Lord's question. Whom shall I send? And I see four answers to that question in this text. Number one, whom shall I send? One who has a biblical vision of God. One who has a biblical vision of God. Yes, 
When Isaiah entered the temple that day, he got more than he bargained for. He expected to see a priest, perhaps. He may have even hoped to have an audience with the high priest. But he was totally unprepared to walk into the Lord's house and find himself coming face to face with the Holy One of Israel. And so we read in verse 1, in the, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. We have no concept, no sensitivity to what he felt when he saw the Lord. What happens when a sinful man sees the Lord? There isn't joy. There isn't glee. You don't get all chummy with the Holy One of Israel. You fall down on your face in fear. That's why every time an angel appeared to someone in the world, the first thing he says is, do not be afraid. Why? Because your natural inclination is to throw yourself on the ground. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. As Isaiah enters the temple, he finds himself suddenly standing in the majestic, breathtaking, heart-stopping presence of the Holy One of Israel. Nothing could have been more unexpected or more terrifying to this young would-be prophet. Yet there were times in the past when God had made his presence visible in the temple in the form of smoke and fire. But here was a vision of God himself. I say vision because the scriptures make it explicit that no one can see the Lord and live. This must have been a very vivid vi vision of the Lord from the Lord. In any case, that's what Moses says in Sinai. Remember, he wanted the Lord to show him his glory, and the Lord said, what? Do you want to die? I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand, and then I'll walk by and let you see the back parts of me, as it were. This is what Jesus affirmed in John chapter 1. No one has ever seen God. And this is what the Apostle John reiterated in 1 John 4, 12. No one has ever seen God. And so Isaiah steps into the temple of the Lord and is met with this breathtaking vision of God. And when Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, he had a very specific idea in mind. He uses a very specific word, not just Lord, not just God, but in this case, Adonai. I saw Adonai. This is the king. You take the word Adonai and look at its meaning. It simply means the sovereign one. That is not his name. That is not God's name. His name is not Adonai. His name is Yahweh. His name is Yahweh. It is the covenantal name. It is the name that he revealed to Moses on the mountain. The ineffable name. The name that is too great to be explained with words. It is the, 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 the name that no scribe would dare write with pen and ink. They would simply write the consonants. They were afraid if they wrote the vowels with the consonants. They would die. No one would write the Lord's name. And so here he is, 
the Lord, the Sovereign One. Yahweh is his name, but his title is Adonai. This is the Lord, the Sovereign King. Isaiah approaches the temple that day, heavy with concern that Judah's king is dead, only to discover that the real king, the supreme king, the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords is very much alive and in charge. He is sitting upon his throne. He is not only sitting upon his throne, he is high and lifted up. I want you to notice that the Lord is not standing behind the throne in panic. He's not having a panic attack. attack. He is not pacing back and forth with worry or concern, nor is he laying on a couch in disinterested freedom, indifference. No, he's seated on the throne. He is seated as the king. He's seated on his throne, high and lifted up. He is ruling over the affairs of the nation. And his throne high and lifted up, simply means it is of greatest authority. It is of greater authority than all the other thrones on earth. It is a throne whose authority infinitely surpasses the domain of the greatest superpowers on earth. As King Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way, he being the head of his own superpower, Babylon, who God is going to use Through the message of Isaiah, it is Babylon who will come to the people to do what God says here at the end of the chapter. This very Babylon will one say, through King Nebuchadnezzar, he says of God, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of earth. And no one, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? As if to judge God. No, no, no. This is the sovereign, sovereign Lord of all. Isaiah goes on to say, the train of his robe filled the temple. Notice, there is no description of the Lord himself. There is merely a statement about his throne and about his clothing. He's apparently wearing the attire of an eastern king. In the ancient world, the The relative power and magnificence of rulers was communicated by the size and substance of their robes. But more than anything, it was the length of the robe that displayed his stature and his importance. Some of you will remember back in the 1980s, I checked this out on YouTube a couple days ago, when Princess Diana married Prince Charles. You remember that? How many of you remember that? Most of you were too young. A lot of you weren't even born in the early 80s. The men who were part of that procession were dressed in their royal, literally royal regalia. They had their military medals on their chest. They had their swords by their sides. They all came to um, uh, Westminster Abbey in their horse-drawn carriages. And people were held back, the thousands upon thousands. You could hear them cheering and clapping as each royal stepped out of the next um, horse-drawn cart. And it was very, very impressive. 
or at least you would think it was very impressive until the last coach came and outstepped Diana. And at first, it may not impress you. She's wearing white. We would expect her to be white, be wearing white. And so she starts ascending the the steps to Westminster Abbey, and it seemed she would make it all the way to the church door before the train of her robe finally tumbled out of the carriage. It must have been 30 feet long. It was huge. Why? I I mean, how many of you ladies have had... A, a wedding dress with a 30-foot-long train. I mean, imagine, that's all of the length of these pews. And yet, there she was. Why? Because it communicates something. It communicates royalty, authority, and the length and breadth of that authority, or would-be authority. But when Isaiah saw the sovereign Lord seated on his throne and highly exalted the train of his robe filled the temple it was everywhere it's as if you couldn't step anywhere in the temple proper without stepping on his robe and yet isaiah's description of the glory of this king continues look at verse 2 Verse 2 says, above him, above who? This highly exalted Lord, Yahweh, who is the sovereign king. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Among the ancient monarchs, it was customary to surround oneself with numerous attending princes and nobles to give the sense of magnificence in your court. But no human king ever had a magnificent court like the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In the case of this king, his ministers gleamed with the radiance of lightning and were just as fast. Each has three sets of wings to cover the face, to cover the lower extremities, and to fly. What were these creatures? Well, this is the only place they're mentioned in the Bible. And we don't know much about them. We know that the verb form of the word seraph means to burn. And so sometimes in art, they're shown as these beings who have wings, but they're consumed also in fire. These are the shining ones. We understand somewhat intuitively that no sinful man could ever behold the Holy One of Israel and live. But these are not sinful men, and yet their wings cover their face. It covers their body. It says feet. The original language, at least the scholars I read, said probably the entire lower extremities of the, Bible, of the body, they are covered up. Think about this. When God creates a creature, he equips him specifically to live in the environment that he has. Fish have gills so they can breathe water. They have fins so they can navigate through water. Birds, they don't have any of those things. They have hollow bones. They have wings. They have feathers. Everything God creates, he creates with specialized equipment so that they can live and thrive in their environment. 
God created the seraphim with wings designed to cover their face, designed to cover their bodies. Why? So that they would live. And the opposite, no doubt, is true. It's amazing, isn't it? That these holy creatures, holy creatures, could not look at their creator. What are these creatures? We don't know. They are called the seraphim. Yet all we know is that they attend the king. These are beings who are carefully equipped by God to live in his presence and to attend to his every wish. They are, in the words of Hebrews, ministering spirits there to do his will. But even they have to cover themselves in his presence. However, it's not their wings, but their words that are intended to impress us most. Look at verses 3 and 4. And one calls out to another. Most commentators say this is antiphonal. You look at the book of, uh, of Revelation, and it sure looks that way. This is antiphonal. They're calling it out day and night. They're calling it out to one another. One says it, and then the other says it. What do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty is the Lord of hosts, your translation may say. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the other set of seraphim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These were the ministering spirits of God. It's amazing to think about. It is impossible for us even to imagine what it must have been like. But it, this message that they announce is unique. It's the only time we find it until we see him again in Revelation. The significance of what they say is important here. They declare repeatedly, holy, holy, holy. The theologians use what is sometimes called the thrice hagion, the three times holy one. In Israel, if you were a Jew, if you wanted to emphasize something, you could do it by repetition. You would say something twice. For example, in the case of Jesus, when Jesus wanted to, re to emphasize something, he often said, truly, truly, right? This is for emphasis. Or the Apostle Paul, he wants to emphasize something in Philippians. He wants to emphasize joy. And so he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. And we can give other illustrations, longer and shorter illustrations of that. But here it isn't a twice repetition. It is a three times repetition. What is it that is so important that it will be repeated three times? And it is this. You must understand that the Lord your God is holy. He's holy. Just get rid of your dad. God is rad, he's my dad t-shirt. He's holy. He's holy. Be careful about how you come to worship him. He is holy. Be careful about how you think about your sin. Yes, grace has covered it. Yes, the blood of Jesus has covered it. But it's not that God doesn't hate your sin. He is holy. He is holy. 
And when you understand or even begin to understand the holiness of God, you will then begin, just begin to understand the grace of God. The grace of God to so many of us Western Christians isn't that magnificent because the holiness of God isn't that magnificent. We don't know how bad the bad news is. We don't dwell on how bad the bad news would be for us if it weren't for the good news of the gospel. Sinners are incinerated in the presence of this holy God. Seraphim have to wrap themselves with their wings just to survive the presence of God. And we would tramp into his presence unadvisedly, flippantly, Or maybe we have better things to do than to sit at the feet of the Holy One of Israel and worship. No wonder Jesus told Mary, Martha, he told Martha, Martha, what you're doing is fine, right? But what Mary is doing sitting at my feet is the one thing necessary. He's holy. He's holy. He is not merely holy. He is not merely holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The king seated on the throne in the temple is infinitely, transcendently holy. You want a a definition of holiness? Here's the definition of holiness. God. The word literally means to cut. It means to separate. God is infinitely separated from man. And yet he also says, but I am in your midst. We take for granted that he's in our midst. But oh, how we would worship him if we understood what it means. This God who has to humble himself to look at the heavens and yet resides with us and in us. Paul says that's the great mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You want to know what holiness is? It is God. It is everything about God. Is God a loving God? Yes, but it is a holy love. You have loves. Not all of your loves are holy. He is righteous. And all of his righteousness, even his righteous anger, is holy He is powerful, but his power is always a holy power. He is merciful. Some of your mercifulness is not a holy mercy. It is a self-centered mercy. It's never that way with God. It is always a holy mercy. It is a holy compassion. And even his wrath is infinitely holy, holy, holy. It is what makes holiness is what makes all of God's infinite attributes beautiful. Notice the name of this Holy One as announced by the burning seraphim. They call him the Lord of hosts. I mean, this just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and less comprehensible to us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You know what the Lord of hosts is? Here he is sitting on the throne with his train filling the temple. He's got these flying beings behind him that are hovering there, waiting for him to tell them what to do. They are singing and yelling to one another, holy, holy, holy. 
and they declare him to be the Lord God of hosts. That is, he is not only king, he is captain of an army of angels. This is the same one who met Joshua right before the attack on Jericho. Remember, Joshua's out, he's kind of surveying, looking kind of across the river. There's the lights of Jericho. We're going to attack that some, you know, tomorrow. And uh, the Lord says, the, uh, you know, the river's going to dry up. Boy, I sure hope that happens. And then he comes across this guy. He's, he's drawing, he's got a sword. And he pulls his sword. And he says, are you for us or against us? Remember what the answer is? Neither. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the captain of an army of angels. Remember the next thing he told Joshua? Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Who was that? It was the king. It was the king stepped down from his throne to talk to Joshua for a little. Amazing. So as if there, this were not enough. The seraphim declares the whole earth is full of his glory. We could say the whole cosmos is full of his glory. Everything in creation came from him. It's for him. It's through him. It's to him. All of it exists to proclaim the king is glorious. Look at the butterfly. You know what the butterfly says? The king is glorious. Look at the clouds. You know what the clouds says? The king is glorious. Look at the fox. You know what the fox says? <laughs> the fox says, the king is glorious. Everything declares his glory. If we have eyes to see. And while the seraphim continue their deafening song of the glory of the king and the earth, the earth beneath his feet begins to quake. And the room starts filling with smoke. And you may say, look, this has just gone from magnificent to scary or weird. I'm not sure. It may sound a little different to your ears. What is it with the smoke and the trembling? It all adds to this effect of glory. And it's not unprecedented. You remember what happened to Moses when he went up to meet with the Lord? And he was supposed to go with his, his, his elders. And they walked up to the mountain and it's trembling, and there's lightning, and there's fire, and there's smoke. And they say, Moses, why don't you go up? <laughs> it's the same thing. The Lord comes in his manifest presence, and there is smoke, and there is trembling. There's an earthquake. There's an earthquake. This is nothing but the normal consequence of the appearance of the visible glory of God. Oh, Christian friend, look deeply into the pages of Scripture and behold your God. Is this your God? Do you recognize him? Do you know who he is? Is this the Savior that you say that you adore? Who is this king? Who is this king? I will tell you, you already know. He is God's anointed one. That's what king is. He is God's anointed one. 
He is the Christ. That's what anointed one means. He is the Messiah. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the very Son of God who would one day step down from his royal throne to visit earth and to live among us. God with us, Emmanuel. He is the one who would become poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. He is Jesus. He is the suffering servant. He is the savior. He is the eternal sovereign. He is the king. And there should be an amen there. But many of you are thinking, no doubt, are you sure that this is Jesus? I am absolutely sure this is Jesus. Well, how do you know? Show me in a text of Scripture, and I will show you. John chapter 12, verse 41, after Jesus quotes from this passage in Isaiah 6 to the people, John says this, 1241, the apostle John wrote these things, who wrote these things, uh, the one who wrote these things said what he said because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of him. The apostle John wrote, these things Isaiah said because he saw Jesus, and I insert Jesus here only because if the surrounding context is all about Jesus, it's Jesus speaking, the whole thing is Jesus. I said, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of him. Of who? Of Jesus. This was Christ. Isaiah, at a moment of crisis, wants to go to the temple to pray. He meets the king of glory and he is your savior. And one day, Paul says about this king, one day every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Adonai. That's what Lord means. He is the sovereign one. He is Lord. He is that king that Isaiah met in the temple. When Isaiah walked into the temple that day, he saw the Lord. And you have never seen him. Yet you love him. And you rejoice with joy unspeakable because you have, in a sense, seen him you see him in the pages of Scripture. The second answer to whom shall I send? The first answer is one who has a biblical vision of God. The second answer, whom shall I send? One who has come to the end of himself. After seeing the beatific vision of the king, Isaiah has an immediate and involuntary response. We've heard the seraphim speak. Now we hear Isaiah speak. This whole narrative reveals how Isaiah became the prophet of the Lord. And here is his, this prophet is about to, to offer his first oracle. And there are two types of oracles. I learned this week from R.C. Sproul. 
who though being dead, yet speaketh. There is the oracle of weal and the oracle of woe. The oracle of weal is to bless. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you when all men despise you, for so they have treated the prophets. Blessed, blessed, blessed. This is an oracle of God. It is an oracle of blessing. The oracle of woe was a curse. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, Chorazin, because if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what you have seen, they would have repented. Woe to you. Woe to you. Here is Isaiah. He is about to pronounce his first oracle, and here is what he says, face down on the ground. Woe is me. A curse upon me. I am cursed of God in the very temple of the Lord. I am lost. Some of your translations say, I am undone. Literally means, I am coming apart. My whole life is disintegrating. Why? He tells us why. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The would-be prophet feels the crushing weight of his own unworthiness because of his personal sin. The glory of God's holiness he feels will crush him. By the way, the full weight and glory of God's holiness did not crush him. But it will be Isaiah in 53 where he will say, but the Lord crushed his son. What he did not give to Isaiah, he gave to Jesus. What God prevented Abraham from doing to Isaac, he did to Jesus for us. The Bible teaches that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isaiah knows that. That's why he points to his dirty mouth, his unclean lips. I mean, sooner or later, the sin that is lodged in our hearts finds its way out of our mouths. Standing before God, Isaiah knew he was in serious trouble because he had a dirty mouth. Why was that a problem? Because it revealed a dirty heart. You can't stand before God with a dirty heart. And even if you have a perfectly clean heart, you've got to be wrapped in something. One day it'll be the robes of righteousness given to us from Jesus, this king, Imagine that. He'll step down from his throne, and as we enter, as we enter, as we enter, he immediately wraps us in these robes, these protective robes of righteousness. In his sinful state, he has seen the Lord. So he naturally thought he was a dead man. Remember when Manoah saw the Lord? The Lord and 
His companions come to talk to, to, um, who did I say? Manoah. I was just testing you. I want to see if you're, <laughs> comes to Manoah. He's about ready to tell him, your wife is going to have a son and he's going to be Samson. And Manoah says, hey, let's cook a meal. Let's, oh, let's make a sacrifice. He makes the sacrifice and the Lord steps into the sacrifice and phew, and he realizes it's the Lord. And he runs to his wife and he says, I'm a dead man, I'm a dead man, I'm a dead man. She says, why? Let me tell you what just happened. No one can see the Lord and live. And most of us have very practical women who can do the math very quickly. And she says, Manoah, if he wanted to kill you, <laughs> he would have done it by now. Let's see if we can figure this out. But everybody, everybody knew that. Everybody understood. You can't be in the presence of God as a sinner and not be annihilated, not face the full weight of his judgment. So we thought he was dead. To be sure, the wages of sin is death. Listen, no one ever finds within themselves a love for the gospel and a deep sense of gospel urgency until he has come to terms with how much he himself desperately needs it. Until you understand what God has saved you from and what you deserve, you'll never, you'll never really know the joy of sharing the gospel. You'll never have that inner sense of gospel urgency before before you can be made well, you must become convinced that you are sick. That's what Jesus said, right? Something like that. I didn't come for well people, but for the sick. And before you can be forgiven and redeemed, you must come to know your own wretchedness and the condemnation which you justly deserve. This is what Isaiah is experiencing now in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. Who shall I send? Well, he's about to send Isaiah. And so the answer must be one who has a biblical vision of God and one who has come to the end of himself. One who has come to the end of his own righteousness. One who has come to the end of his own self-sufficiency. One who has finally come to a place where he realizes the only thing he has to offer God is his sin. There's no mention of a bloody sacrifice here. But the next question, or the, the original question, whom shall I send, continues. By the way, this is an Old Testament revelation of God's transforming grace. The one who will be sent from God must be transformed by the power of his grace. He must be one who has tasted divine pardon. And that's the third answer to the question. Look at verses 6 and 7. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Oh, my friend, don't you wish God would say that to you? that all of your sin, and you're thinking, my sin is too great. It's not greater than God. It is not greater than God. All of your sin, all of your shame, all of it 
your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So upon the king's silent order, apparently one of the fiery uh, seraphs flash over Isaiah's head toward the altar of burnt offerings. If he's kind of in the temple or at the door to the holy place, the um, altar of burnt offerings is behind him. And so the seraph takes off. He flies over Isaiah's head. He goes out to the altar of burnt offerings. He takes a, a pair of tongs and he removes a coal. And there's no mention of a bloody sacrifice here, but it's assumed, it's assumed, without the shedding of blood, blood Hebrews 9.22 says, there is no remission of sins. It was the whole point of the sacrifices. They were made day and night, every morning, every evening. And so the seraph reaches into the altar and draws out a white hot coal and brings it to Isaiah. And reaching down ever so carefully, he touches his lips with the coal. And he says, verse 7, this has touched your mouth. Your guilt is, is taken away. From this moment on, your sin In that instant, the sovereign mercy of Messiah brought divine pardon. His guilt is gone. His sin is cleansed. He's made new. Now he can stand in the presence of God without fear. Now he can serve the king with clean hands and a pure heart, empowered by the grace of his sovereign Lord. You see, beloved, God isn't looking for people who are perfect, just people who are pardoned. And you don't get pardoned unless you humble yourself, unless you come to the end of yourself. Those are the ones whom God freely pardons. Then, when you are pardoned, you can carry the message to the world. And isn't that good to know? There are no perfect people, people in this room, not even... Not even this brother, my dear friend over here. Not perfect? Your wife is here, right? I can ask her. But you are pardoned, and I am pardoned. And I will sin again, but wrapped in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, covered by his blood, having received reconciliation, justification by grace through faith, I can serve, I can preach, I can lead my family, I can tell people of the gospel and have the spirit indwelling in me to empower that message. My guilt is taken away, my sin is gone. And now we come to the central question of the text, verse eight. And I heard a voice, I heard the voice of the Lord, this is the sovereign one, Okay, so we've heard, we've heard from the seraphim, we've heard from Isaiah, and now we're about to hear from the Lord. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Question is somewhat ironic, don't you think? Doesn't appear there's anybody else in the room. It's as if he's sitting right there, and the Lord's saying, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Hint, hint. Right? Now, I don't think um, I don't think Isaiah took it lightly. 
the Lord would not compel Isaiah to go. He's done everything to make Isaiah fit for his service, regardless of how inadequate he may feel or be. And now it's up to Isaiah to respond in faith. Isaiah now, Isaiah now has a biblical vision of God. He has come to the end of himself. He has tasted God's pardoning grace. And now the only question is, will he be willing to go? And that's the only question you have to answer. Will you be willing to go? Go where? Africa? No. Will you be willing to go to that person who is standing right there and looks like he's willing to talk or needs something? Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it is someone in Africa. Maybe you do need to move. Maybe you need to plant a church. The only question is, if you have a biblical vision of God, if you've come to the end of yourself, if you have been pardoned, the only question left is, will you go? Or will you waste your life with the world? I imagine Isaiah now, having been sprawled prostrate on the floor of the temple, lifting his head oh so humbly and tentatively saying, not here I am, as if it were indicating his location, but here am I, indicating surrender. I am yours. Take my life. Let it be consecrated, Lord, to you. Do with me whatever you please. Tell me what to do, and I will go. I will go. Imperfectly, tentatively perhaps, but I will go. If you will have me, I will be your man. And so to the king's question, whom shall I send? This passage answers one who has a biblical vision of God, one who has come to the end of himself, one who has tasted divine pardon, and one who has surrendered all to the king. And I would merely ask, is that you? And we're talking about gospel urgency. Is that you? I praise God for the few of you who have come to me and, he, and, and have answered that question. Yes, yes, and I'm not even sure why. I just have a freedom. I just, just talking about it like this has given me freedom that I didn't know that I would have in talking with people. Yes, I'm willing to go. I don't know where God wants me to go. I don't know what he wants me to do next, but I'm willing. I'm willing. Do you now see the glory and majesty of God? Have you come to the end of your own self-sufficiency because of a knowledge of your sin and inadequacy before God? Have you tasted the divine pardon of the king who purchased it for you when he died on the cross in your place? If so, then are you ready to surrender to your king? And if so, will you, have little prob- you will have little problem maintaining a sense of gospel urgency. It won't be a big deal because you know that you are not your own. You're not living for you anymore. The Holy One of Israel is seated on his throne, highly exalted, and you are his. His angels do his bidding. Will you, in the next five minutes, when you're standing in the grocery line or getting gas at the gas station or hanging out at the water cooler, 
whatever that is, at work <laughs> or the coffee pot, we go. It's not a question of should you. You belong to another, the Holy One of Israel, your King. And it is your joy to serve him however he desires. Now, time's almost gone, but there's a brief epilogue. It's kind of an epilogue to all of this. We should take just a moment to consider Isaiah's assignment. Look at verses 9 and 10. Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. And here's what the Lord says. Go! So like Matthew 28? Except this is imperative, and there it's not. It's different wording. But it's the same message. Go! What should he do? Okay, listen very carefully to this assignment. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. The Lord says to Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed like you have, Isaiah. Isn't this, this is not the message we expected to hear. What do you mean go and make them dull? What do you mean go and make them blind and deaf? What kind of assignment is that, Lord? I thought it was going to be revival. No. God's doing all kinds of things. He's building his church and he's doing it his way. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who can say to him, what have you done? He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and, and the people of earth. What he is doing is a holy thing. And by the way, this repeatedly, this passage repeatedly shows up in the New Testament. Jesus quotes it outright in John when he says, rightly did Isaiah say of you, your eyes are blind, your ears are deaf, and you don't want to hear. And by the way, many people have said over the years in my early days of learning that the reason Jesus spoke in parables was so that it would be clear, and quite the opposite is true. Jesus said, no, no, no. The reason I speak in parables is because of this text, so that hearing they will not hear, and seeing they will not see and perceiving they will not understand. What would you say if the Lord gave you that assignment? You would probably say what Isaiah said in verse 11. He said, how long? <laughs> a week? A month? You want me to do a mission trip somewhere where people are like that? And then come back and revival? No. Until cities are waste, laid waste. When would that happen? more than 100 years later, long after Isaiah's time. But he is to preach, Babylon's coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. You don't want to hear this. You're going to want to kill me. And Jeremiah was a contemporary. They wanted to kill him. He was later, but overlapping, I think. When Babylon came, um, Jeremiah had picked up the same message. And he said, until cities lay waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is desolate and waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and that's what he did. He took them to Babylon for 70 years. And the forsaken place 
those forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though the tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or like an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. Now let me just cut through all of that and say this. You take my message, you deliver it to the people, and just know most of them aren't going to care. They, they don't want to hear it. I, I talked to a man this week that did everything in my power, and he just, he just, he wasn't hearing anything I was saying. It didn't make any sense to him. When I would close my mouth, he would just go. <laughs> and the Lord says, it's okay. That's your mission. Go and speak to these people. But know this, there's hope. There's a remnant. There's a tenth. Maybe not exactly a tenth. But there is a remnant whom I have called for myself. And they will come. William Carey said, if that's not true, I would never have become a missionary. He believed in the sovereignty of God. And beloved, this is our hope. God has sent us with a message. He empowers the message, and he calls to himself by the message people for his own possession. And it's amazing. It's amazing to be a part of it. Oh, beloved, the king has appeared. He's brought you to the end of yourself. He's granted you everlasting pardon. And now he has a mission for you to accomplish, namely, that you will be faithful to deliver his message to sinners wherever and whenever you have opportunity. This is what gospel urgency is all about. He is your God. He is your thrice holy king. Will you serve him? Let's pray. And Father, we praise you for the privilege now that we feel that sharing the gospel is because we are serving you, the sovereign king. I ask, Father, that you bless us as we go. And we understand that not everybody we tell will receive but, oh, Father, I pray that some will, by your grace and for your glory, that you would save some through the ministry of your people in this church and all of it to the praise of your glorious grace. We praise you, oh, holy, holy King, and we thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray.